Hi, uh, my name is Edward Reed, and this is Chicken Philosophy. We're going to start this debut episode with Carl Jung's Black Books, uh, the first of the seven volumes. <clears throat> I'll introduce myself and uh, talk a bit at the end, but I want to make this <clears throat> all about the books. So we're going to jump right in. I'll read each page. C.G. Jung, The Black Books, 1913 through 1932. Notebooks of Transformation, Volume 1. Edited by <clears throat> Sonu Sham Dasani. Translated by Martin Liebcher, John Peck, and Sonu Sham Dasani. Uh, Philemon series in collaboration with the foundation of the works of C.G. Jung. W.W. Norton and Company, independent publishers since 1923. That last part was very small, very hard to read. <clears throat> and just for fun, copyright 2020 by the... You know what, I'm not gonna read every page, but I will read the contents. <clears throat> contents, volume one, that's the one we're reading now. And uh, then it goes into the contents of volume two. Well, it's short, I'll read it. Acknowledgements, so volume one, acknowledgements, page seven. Toward a visionary science, Jung's Notebooks of Transformation, page 11, that's written by Sonu Shamdasami. Editorial note, page 113. So I get the feeling that uh, we're going to be reading a lot of Sonu Shamdasani today, since that starts at page 11, and the next section is on page 113. So we know what to look forward to for the first three or four episodes. I'm going to try to make these about half hour uh, per episode. Yeah, episode. We'll call them episodes. Why not? We're making the rules, right? Translating Jung's Runes, 115. That's written by Martin Lebcher, John Peck, and Sonu Shamdasani. Abbreviations, 121. Appendix, 122. Index, 162. Okay, so that's volume one. That's what we're going to read. Seems like none of it, none of volume one is written by Carl Jung. It's all written by other folks about the black books. Sorry about the noise there. Um, volume two is when we actually get into his, his journals, basically. It's his old journals uh, leading up to eventually the red book here. So my plan is to read uh, all of these books and then eventually the red book. And then after that, to read this and then this and then... Well, we'll see where it goes from there. Um, quick note, the name of this channel, Chicken Philosophy, is a nod to my buddy Robbie over at Gonzo Theology, since uh, I think people, at least people of my generation and a bit older, will all recall that Gonzo was often seen affectionately um, with a chicken. 
Now, obviously, <clears throat> that's not the the use of the word gonzo that that my 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 brother Ravi is using. The play on words. All right. So there you have it. Check out his channel. Um, I'll point to it so you can check that out later after you hear my channel. He reads, so I'm imitating what he does on this channel. <clears throat> Volume two, book two, right. Where was book one? I don't know. All right, good enough. Uh, November 12th through December 29, 1913. So if I understand correctly, he's like working with patients and making notes and some, some of the illustrations, I think those illustrations are uh, that, those of his patients. So then book three is, uh, volume three, book three, November 30, 1913 through January 14, 1914. So he was doing a lot of work in a short amount of time. Volume four, book four, January 14 through March 9, 1914. Volume five is book five, March 13, 1914 through January 30th of 1916. Volume six is book six, January 30, 1916 to March 21, 1917. Volume seven is book seven, May 21, 1917 <clears throat> to November 15th of 1932. So now we're moving on to acknowledgments. The Philemon. Uh, foundation thanks all its donors, in particular, former President Judith Harris. I'm assuming she's the former president of the Philemon Foundation because I don't recall a president of the United States by that name. Anyway, for making this edition possible. As co-president of the foundation called it from 2009 and president since 2012, she enabled and sustained the project. <clears throat> I thank her and Tony Wolfson. I'm starting to have second thoughts about reading the acknowledgments. You know? Um, okay, okay. I'll just skip the, you know, I'm sure all these are lovely people and very important and we should all know their names. It's like the credits at the end of a movie, but... I'm not going to expect you to sit through the credits at the end of a movie, at the beginning of the movie, unless we're going to do some subtitles about Swedish moose. Anyway, <clears throat> this project had a long, I'm skipping it. This project had a long gestation before formally starting. In the summer of 2000, I started studying Jung's Black Books. In the context of editing the Red Book, that's the Red Book, <clears throat> Liber Novus, meaning new book, I reiterate my thanks to those acknowledged there, for that formed the prerequisite for the commencement of this edition. The Black Books and Liber, Liber Novus are two parts of an interconnected unpublished manuscript corpus I mean, they're published now, maybe at the time he was, never mind, okay. And publication of the black books marks the completion of work begun then. What do we do now? That was in quotes, the what do we do now? Jim 
mayors asked me in the autumn of 2009 on the publication of Liber Novus. I suggested the Black Books. Then on public display for the first time in the Rubin Museum in New York. The Philemon Foundation took on the project. I thank the then board of the Philemon Foundation co-presidents Nancy Ferlotti and Judith Harris, Tom, Charlesworth, Gilda, France, and a long list of other names that we're going to skip past. On examining the Black Books in 2010, Jim Mayers sketched an illustration of how he envisaged this edition in his inimitable way. Right. And he is surely missed. Apparently he passed away. Blessings to his spirit. Um, right. I thank his colleagues at W.W. Norton, in particular, names. Uh, the edition has been finely designed, laid out, and typeset by Laura Lindgren. Once more, it has been a pleasure and instructive privilege to continue a collaboration that began with C.G. Jung, a, bi a biography in books, and has advanced through the Red Book, a reader's edition, and Lament of the Dead. I thank Janet Byrne for her meticulous copy editing, and Charles Newman for his fine indexing. I thank the foundation. Okay, all right. Is there anything else that's interesting besides thanks? I mean, I also thank everybody involved in creating this book. I am not going to spend any more time, however, reading these thanks. Um, I hope that's okay with you. Comment below. Next section, Toward a Visionary Science. Jung's Notebooks of Transformation uh, by Sonu Sham Dasani, who seems to be the primary person who is responsible for the publication of these books. So thank you, Sonu. Prelude. In 1935, Jung said, it's a train, it's kind of quaint noise pollution, better than like honking and shouting. Anyway, in 1935, Jung said, quote, a point exists at about the 35th year when things begin to change. It is the first moment of the shadow side of life, of the going down to death. It is clear that Dante found this point, and those who have read Zarathustra will know that Nietzsche also discovered it. When this turning point comes, people meet it in several ways. Some turn away from it, others plunge into it, and something important happens to yet others from the outside. If we do not see a thing, fate does it to us." End quote. By 1913, he had established himself as one of the leading lights in European psychiatry and was president of the burgeoning, yes, International Psychoanalysis Association, as he recounted in Liber Novus. Quote, I had achieved everything that I had wished for myself. I had achieved honor, power, wealth, knowledge, and every human happiness. Cool. Wow. Hmm. All right. Then my desire is still in the quotes. 
Then my desire for the increase of these trappings ceased. The desire ebbed from me and horror came over me." End quote. He had reached a turning point that was to transform his life and work. Through this, Jung became Jung. An analytical psychology emerged at, and analytical psychology emerged as a general philosophy and as a school of psychotherapy. The transformation took place through the exploration of the visionary imagination charted in the black books from 1913 to 1932. That's 29 years, right? No, 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 that's, that's 19 years, Edward. Okay, gotta go back to basic arithmetic here. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're, these are not personal diaries, but the records of a unique self-experimentation that Jung called his, quote, confrontation with his soul, end quote, and his, quote, confrontation with the unconscious, end quote. He didn't record day-to-day -day happenings or outer events in them, but rather his active imaginations depictions of his mental states, and reflections on these. From the fantasies therein, between 1913 and 1916, he composed the draft of Liber Novus, the Red Book, which he then transcribed in a calligraphic, calligraphic, calligraphy, you know, handwriting volume, illustrated with paintings the paintings from 1916 onward in the Red Book relate to Jung's continued explorations in the later Black Books. Liber Novus and the Black Books are thus closely intertwined. The Black Books cover the period before, during, and after Liber Novus. Liber Novus was born from the Black Books. Those familiar with alchemy might go, hmm, <laughs> Black Books, Red Books, where's the White Books? Right? Um, it includes Jung's meditation on his fantasies between 1913 and 1916 and his understanding of the significance of his experiences up to that point. In Jung's view, his undertaking pertained not just to himself, but to others as well. He had come to view his fantasies as stemming from a general mythopoetic layer of the psyche which he named the collective unconscious. Some people's minds are being blown right now. He coined that phrase? Yes, yes he did. Um, right. From the notebooks of a self-experimentation, a psychological work in a literary and theogonic form was created. Jung's continued exploration of the visionary imagination in the Black Books from 1916 chart his evolving understanding and demonstrate how he sought to develop and extend the insights he had gained and embody them in life. At the same time, they enable his paintings from 1916 onward to be understood in the context of evolution of the iconography of the evolution of the iconography of his personal cosmology. Given the intersection of the Black Books and Liber Novus, particularly between 1913 and 1916, 
The introduction of necessity reprises in a reworked and expanded form sections, what? All right. Uh, from the introduction to Liber Novus now taken up from a different angle, as both works arise from one context and shared chronology. The introduction at hand focuses more on the unfolding of Jung's visionary self-experimentation and provides a fuller contextualization of the later period, or latter period, if you're into that pronunciation, 1916 to 1932. Similarly, a share of the notes from the, from the 2009 Norton edition of Liber Novus have been carried over in the first part of this edition. In the early 20th century, it was not uncommon for a work to be expanded and recast through several editions. A number of Jung's pivotal publications, such as the Psychology of the Unconscious uh, Processes, are prime examples of this. This introduction is part of that genre. genre. I'm going to stop there for today. I'll be reading more at a time in episodes moving forward. But since this is the first episode, I wanted to spend a little bit of time saying hello and letting you know what is going on. Um, my name's, as I mentioned, Edward Reed. This is not my first channel. Um, if you're interested, you can visit uh, edwardreeb.com and it looks like this. And there you can see all of the various things that I've got going on or have been you know, doing as far as content creation, a uh, very sort of sterile, dehumanizing uh, phrase for doing things or, uh, you know, expressing things and whatnot. Um, as you can see behind me, I have a lot of books. This is not because I am an avid reader. It is because I aspire to be an avid reader. I was the sort of kid growing up in the 80s who was more interested in his Atari later Nintendo than he was in his homework. And uh, so, as mentioned in that uh, introduction, when I turned 35, I actually, before I was 36, I started the Esoterra Nerd podcast and, uh, and a few other things, a few other projects. Um, you're, you have to put 17 seconds in between those, those links that go up there. So I'm um, talking right now to fill time before I uh, point again. Um, this is my, my, you could say, main page, Edward Reeb. I'll just say that's my main page for now, um, where you'll find my travels. I am currently speaking to you from India, where I live with my wife, who is Indian. And... Um, I am what they call an overseas citizen of India, which means I'm married to an Indian uh, citizen and I reside in India. Um, there's other different cases where people have the OCI and live outside of India, but I won't go into that because that's not what this is about. Um, other channels you might be interested in, uh, Gwydion's Astral Coffee House. That one is strange, <laughs> but it's also the umbrella that uh, it's also my oldest, my original YouTube channel. I think I, I started I started a channel called Gwydion's Astral Coffee House in 2006, and then I deleted it from existence in 2008. 
and then, or 2007, and then I started another one with the same name in 2008. So if you look at the, you know, this has been a channel since 2008, but really it's been a channel since 2006. In 2006, I made some 300 experimental artistic videos, some of which you can find on Gwydion's Astral uh, Coffeehouse, and some of which you can find in the form of me watching them and commenting on them last year. Um, so, so it's called, it's a playlist called Gwydion 2022, uh, reacts to Gwydion 2006, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, um, if you're interested in all that stuff there, it's all there. You can go find it. And this is my first channel that is going to be filmed vertically. And honestly, that was just because of the shape of the bookshelf behind me. I wanted to, uh, format it this way. And okay, why why this? Why Carl Jung? Um, okay, well to start, my both my parents passed away when I was a teenager back in the nineties, and uh, they were both admirers of Jung's work. Um, my mom told me a story one time about how my grandfather was going through Jungian psychoanalysis back in like the thirties or something. Uh, or, or maybe the 40s. I, I want to say the 30s because the 40s he was busy making airplanes for the war and then starting his business. So it, it was probably the 30s um, when Jung was still with us and uh, you know still kind of active and it was all very new and experimental. And the person that my grandpa was working with <clears throat> was help, helping him analyze his dreams. And one time my grandfather had a dream. It was my grandfather Edward after whom I'm named. Here's a picture of him. He's a scientist. Anyway, um, among other things, he had a dream that he um, was given a little animal that, based on the description, sounds like a tribble from Star Trek. In other words, it was furry, it was purring, but it didn't seem to have a face or legs and arms. So uh, it's a, it was a tribble. Um, but in the dream, he knew that it was called a minic. And his therapist, his Jungian therapist, asked him, okay, where, did, did the woman who gave it to you, did she tell you it was called a minic? And he said, no, I just knew. And he said, how do you spell minic? And he said, M-I-N-I-K. And the therapist said, why is it spelled that way? And my grandpa said, my intuition, not intellect, knows. And kind of had a light bulb go off that helped guide him for the rest of his life. So that was, you know, a story that was told to me before I was 10. So I always had a curiosity and an interest in Carl Jung and his approach towards psychology. And, you know, I would flip through man and his symbols and a few other things and was peripherally familiar with uh, the hero of a thousand faces and knew that this was kind of built on the foundation of Jungian um, archetypes and this kind of thing. So. So I've always kind of had an awareness of Jung's, you know, imprint on our collective consciousness, if you will. Um, but I wanted to dive a bit deeper. So eventually I uh, purchased this, uh, where is it, the red book, and uh, then later the black books. And then they sat on my shelf for a few years. And so what I did, one, one other thing um, I haven't mentioned is Buddhist Books Podcast, where uh, you'll find me dressed in a monk's robe, though I am not an ordained monk. Um, 
but with great respect, you know, uh, my dad was Buddhist and raised me doing uh, tantric meditations, Vajrayana, Tibetan meditations, Nigma. Um, anyway, so so I read um, the Tipitaka, usually the Tipitaka on that channel. And it's sort of my way of bypassing that, uh, you know, the sort of sort of cyber, you know, Tron was my favorite thing. I think I've got a, well, I won't rummage around showing you things, but yeah, Tron is a big deal to me. I used to say Tron was my religion. People would say, what's your religion when you're five? And I'd say, well, my grandma, my mom's mom is Christian and my dad is Buddhist, but my religion is Tron. So, you know, I enjoy obviously making YouTube videos and uh, I've got all kinds of stuff going on on various social media and of course the website, as I mentioned before. <clears throat> so because of my weakness as a, you know, my weakness of character, I am incorporating reading books into my cyber brain by making these channels like Buddhist Books Podcast, where I read uh, ancient Buddhist scriptures. And as of today, right now, I'm finally diving into this because I've been wanting to do that for years. Another motivation for this is I had become, I became a yoga instructor years ago, 2014. And from what I was able to piece together and kind of understand, I um, was able to ascertain that this book here, uh, The Serpent's Power, The Serpent Power, I think that's called, um, by Arthur Avalon, which of course is a pseudonym, was published and it was an English translation of one particular, I wanna say Veda? Uh, no, not Veda. Uh, well, anyway, Gita? Whatever you call Hindu scriptures that aren't the Vedas. These are the Vedas up here. Um, it's not the Upanishads, but anyway, it's a, it's, you call it a sutra in Buddhism, but it's a, I want the Gita maybe, um, this book. But it's a particular translation. The author, chose particular English words to represent Sanskrit words. And it's one of many texts written by many sages and many poets and many great thinkers of India, or, you know, which existed from time immemorial, well, basically from, from this period, the Veda period, forward until today. And I think it was in the 1500s that this was written and talks about um, the chakras and the kundalini and in the context of this book, there are seven chakras, but if you go back a few centuries or, you know, uh, in different lineages, you'll find anywhere from five chakras to eight chakras to 10 chakras. But this became the standard partly because it was read uh, by Carl Jung and he <clears throat> gave a lecture after reading it and that lecture was transcribed. And it became this book here, which is called The Psychology of Kundalini. And that book was read by many, many people back in, I think, the 20s, the 1920s, and <clears throat> formed the foundation for the Western understanding of what you could generally term Eastern, uh, you know, philosophy. Although obviously there's many facets of, there's, there's the six orthodox and six unorthodox uh, philosophies of, of India, and there's Taoism and Buddhism and uh, Confucianism and, and uh, 
uh, all kinds of things that could fall under the heading of Eastern philosophy. So it's not exactly, a, <clears throat> it's not an exact uh, phrase. So, as, but as far as chakras and kundalini and as it relates to yoga and the path of yoga, um, Carl Jung's reading of this book and writing this book, not really writing it, but giving the lecture that became this book, became that foundation for everything that's taken for granted and as fact and dogma by every yoga teacher you've ever met in, you know, West LA or wherever. So I wanted to be able to articulate um, on account of the fact that my dad and I practiced when I was growing up, and as I mentioned, he passed away, so I lack that uh, information source. He spent his whole life learning many things, and uh, I didn't ask all the questions I should have asked before he passed away when I was 15. And so since then, one major motivation of mine is to, is to learn all the stuff I might have learned if I had... Uh, paid more attention when he was still with us. And so, so yeah, so I don't know if this is clear as mud now. Um, th this is all unrelated to this. I'm just letting you know where I'm coming from with it. My goal, one of my goals is to read the black books and then the red book and then this red book and then this commentary to have a clear picture of exactly what this one individual, Carl Jung, brought to the, uh, the, the Western understanding of, of, of yoga, modern yoga in the sense that it's post-Tantra. Um, if you go back to the Yoga Sutras, that's pre-Tantra. So there's a difference between you know, what you'll read in Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras versus what you'll hear from your average yoga teacher who's dove into it and sort of accepted it and, as their religion. Um, for better or worse. And uh, one of my motiva motivations for moving to India, you know, before she and I met, uh, was to get a clearer picture of what, what yoga actually is and, you know, to kind of get to know other scriptures besides this one. Um, but first I want to get to know this one. I want to get a clear picture of Jung and uh, in particular, his uh, his his influence on all of that, and then move beyond that, so that maybe one day when my when I'm old and gray, I will uh, be able to speak with some authority about the difference between you know authentic yoga versus westernized yoga. That's where I'm coming from. That's that's who I am. I'm coming from a place, hopefully, of humility in that I don't consider myself an expert, which is why I'm reading great books um, to become maybe an expert later. However, I must acknowledge that my speech patterns are modeled after my dad's, which isn't really my fault. That was done to me before I had a choice in the matter. And he was a bit of an arrogant ass. And, uh, you know, I lovingly say that um, he was a, a a large man, literally and figuratively. Um, he had a large presence, a sort of booming presence, and he was a college professor for almost 30 years, uh, from 1966 until he passed away in 1993. So he spoke as if he were correcting his students, even if you were 
his wife or his son or his friend. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I try to work with that handicap. Um, but I apologize in advance if I come off as, uh, as a know-it-all. It's not my intention. I fully acknowledge my ignorance in, uh, in all things. And I hope that you enjoy this channel. And I will refrain from babbling on and on about things unrelated to the reading material beginning with episode two of Chicken Philosophy.